Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The afterlife of an artistic legend is the thread running through this hour's musical conversation. The artist in question is the one-off and self-taught jazz pianist Errol Garner. He arrived from Pittsburgh on 52nd Street in New York as jazz was being retooled in the 1940s. He made one of the all-time best-selling jazz concert albums in the 50s, toured the world in the 60s, and died in the 70s. Forty-some years later, respect for Errol Garner is going deeper. It was always safe to say he was a jazz genius, but is it enough? The cultural historian Robin D. G. Kelly at UCLA is the biographer of another piano giant, Thelonious Monk. Around the Garner legacy, Robin Kelly has been engaging eminent players in today's music in a series of podcasts with the likes of B.J. Iyer, Chick Corea, Jason Moran, and Helen Sung, all pianists, and the drummer Terry Lynn Carrington, Robin begins each time with the question, who is Errol Garner to you? Errol Garner is the truth. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> I mean, this cat couldn't read music but played better than anybody. <laughs> it's a rediscovery. Just as an improviser and a communicator, he's a whole new guy. The way he played behind the beat, like almost like his brain was split. Right. Just a master. I think of him as a king. And one who, you know, one who knew how to distribute joy. To me, Errol Garner represents jazz in the garden. Hmm. Unselfconscious, unapologetic, undiluted, just pure, pure jazz. Yeah. We're hearing the same awe and wonder in Robin Kelly's own awakening. Earl Garner was someone who, of course, growing up with the music I was familiar with, whose music I appreciated, but I can't say that I was immersed in his body of work. And in fact, one of the things I discovered on his journey was how incredibly schooled musicians, including pianists, really just were not deeply into Garner. They had nothing against Garner. He just simply didn't rise up in the list of, of, of great artists. That's a part of a big story, a sort of aesthetic revaluation. Errol was almost too straightforward, too simple, too, too heartfelt, too, I don't want to say populist, but too clear mm -hmm. for jazz criticism and for Thelonious Monk students like you. Yeah, despite the fact that Monk loved Garner, you know. I mean, part of it has to do, I think, with with his timing, his big hit is Concert by the Sea at the very moment when, you know, just a few years before Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry are taking the stage at the five spot right. and, and, and Monk is coming out and, and winning respect for his approach to the music. There's talk about experimentation, avant-garde, and here's Arrow who has a mastery of the popular song form. You know, who loves that music, who loves melody, and also rhythmically, you know, it's so subtle. 
you know, his his four beats in the left hand may seem like it's just simply like in tempo, but there's so many subtleties to his approach to rhythm that are not always evident except to those who really listen to him, you know? Yeah. If you're a critic in the world of jazz in the 1960s, Garner appears to be a relic. But if you're really listening, he's so advanced. He's really moving forward. Let me ask you what you ask everybody. Who is Errol Garner to you by now? <laughs> I would say that Errol Garner is at least three things. One, perhaps the most underrated mm. musician or pianist in the jazz tradition in the 20th century. That's one thing. The second thing I would say that Errol Garner is a master composer. Amen. Now, this is someone who did not, who chose not, let me be clear, chose not to read or write down music. He did his writing on the keyboard and he laid out his, his yeah. melodies and his harmonies. And each one of his introductions to his songs, whether it's a standard, he would play these intros that were so elaborate and so original that they're like mini compositions in, in and of themselves. Mm. And then the third thing I would say about Garner is that he was a maverick. You know, um, he and Martha Glazer together. His manager. Were mavericks. Yeah, his, his manager, longtime manager, were mavericks in their commitment to try to become independent of big corporate labels. Mm. That, that's pretty extraordinary. Do you want to ask me the question? Because I've got an answer. I would love. I would, so, so let me. So, so now I'm, I'm on my show. So. So, Chris Lydon, the question I ask all my guests, first question always is, who is Earl Garner to you? Funny question. He's the man in my dream. A dream I had over and over in my teens. I'd look out from our front window and see Errol coming up the lane to our house. And then he's on the steps. And I, mm. my heart is just pounding. I open the door. I want to give him a hug. He looks at my mother's piano and says, do you play? I, not exactly. He said, well, I, I could show you. And he goes over to the piano and he starts that strumming left hand. Mm -hmm. And he says, you can do that. And I, in my dream, sit down, my hands poised over the keys. And at the very first touch, I'm wide awake saying, oh, God, it was a dream. But I, it happened over and over again. Every time I believed it, every time I, I hit the wall. But there he was, this incredibly open, available guy. He remains for me the truth, as Vijay said to you. The acorn in the garden. I love that from Helen Sung to you. Mm, right. It's the Garden of Eden or something. But it's Ur Jazz, unguarded, unspoiled, organic, complete. There's heart, there's temperament, there's consciousness in it. Not the least avant-garde, 
It's music for everybody and it's uplifting. It really is uplifting. That's beautiful. I think that's true. The business of this hour is to spell out the evolution of a reputation or our own hearing more than 40 years after the man died. He was always rated genius. Where does one go beyond genius? I'm not sure. Sainthood, maybe. I remember <laughs> Duke Ellington in a New York big club with his orchestra. Errol Garner quietly came in, probably with Martha Glazer, and he stopped and he said, a real piano player has entered the room, and Errol, you've got, you've got to play for the people, which he did. But so many, Frank Sinatra, for example, used to have him out to Palm Springs to play. I'm sure he taught Frank Sinatra how to sing Teach Me Tonight. I decided long ago he was closer to Franz Schubert than to hmm. Teddy Wilson or anybody in the, in the jazz cast. You say, Ravel, Debussy, it's somewhere in that zone. Right. Yeah, he's, he's been compared to Ravel and Debussy. And what's interesting and, and also quite disturbing in some ways is that the, some of the same critics who will describe him that way will also, in the same breath, treat him as a kind of um, naive or witless person who, because he is quote-unquote self-taught, although that's not exactly true, we can get into that, he's kind of an idiot savant. And so when you read, I'll give you an example, you know, Saturday Evening Post did a spread um, in 1958, it was a guy, uh, Dean Jennings. He has this one line that I could never forget, it's like etching my memory, where he describes Garner as a genius who cannot read music, who has never taken a lesson in, quote, until recently thought Bach was a kind of beer. Oh, God. This is just simply not true. It, it's, it makes good press, but it's what happens to so many great artists, and dare I say, specifically African-American artists, mm. who you know, come out of traditions that are both oral and literal, and who is very familiar with these classical traditions. But for him, these are just tools for him to build his own repertoire. I mean, you know, when Jennings says, you know, he doesn't know how to use foot pedals. Of course he knows how to use foot pedals. God almighty. So when asking the question, like, why don't we know more about Errol Garner? If you turn an artist into a caricature, the same thing would happen to Monk, then it's very easy to dismiss them mm. and not really pay attention and take them seriously. And then the anecdotes around Errol Garner sitting on a phone book, for example, take precedent over his approach to harmony and rhythm. There's another point here. Errol Garner made a choice to be an upbeat presence. And you've spoken a lot about this very effectively. He was a lifter of spirits, and he still is. Right. He made a joyful noise, in biblical terms, deliberately. It's not metaphor or just church talk. He cheers me up. I start my day as often as not with Garner, and he gets me through it. He does make you feel different and better. Right. And when you think about all the people who came out of Pittsburgh, Amen. so many of them actually do bring you, I mean, whether or not their, their demeanor is happy, they bring happy music. I mean, you know, Mary Lou Williams was basically his mentor. Ahmad Jamal, Billy Strayhorn, you know, these are all folks coming out of Pittsburgh who really knew that you made music not just for yourself, mm. 
but for the people who came, whether they're paying, whether they're dancing, whether it's just a rent party, they want to be moved. And whether you're in church or in the club or up in a loft somewhere, you've got to move the people. And it's hard not to move the people if you don't have an attitude of joy.、Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what Garner brought to his music that joy. And that sometimes that joy gets confused with naivete or with lack of seriousness. Robin Kelly is retuning our idea of Errol Garner. Coming up, the Errol Garner model of embodied cognition. This is open source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Robin Kelly's podcasts on Errol Garner put the upbeat affirmations of the man's music into the context of a crisis in Black America during civil rights time. Kelly's notion is that Garner, in his big college concerts in the 60s, was offering not a prescription for the times, but a sort of intervention. I asked him to spell that out. It's not as if Errol Garner was not aware that he was playing in the middle of a civil rights movement, that he was playing in the year of the march in Washington, in the year of the killing of four little girls in, in Birmingham, Alabama, in the, the, the year that so much is happening around the nation and for that matter around the world. And so he brought that music as an affirmation, I think, of, of humanity. Reflected on this and spoke about it well. There was an interview with a woman named Patricia Curland, I'm not sure when, but he said to her, When you're doing what you love, what you were meant to do, that in itself is rest. As long as you know you're creating something for the average human being in this world and when you can be happy doing what you do, that's peace of mind. What I try to do is distribute a little bit here and there and make everybody love it as much as I possibly can. It more or less Feeds you.、Mm-hmm. I take that straight. Yes. I think, that, I think that's absolutely right. And that was his objective. You know, he wanted to bring joy, you know, and that was the point of music in the first place. That doesn't mean it wasn't challenging music, but it was joyful.、Mm. Jason Moran, wonderful musician, said to you on your podcast about that One World concert in what, 1963? He said it's all about understanding his role in society. Everything is clear in Errol's playing in a time of total mess. Errol's telling you, you can see the flowers and the grass. I'm leaving them here for you. <laughs> I think that's right. I can't say more than that. I mean, that's. Jason being his eloquent self. And, you know, Jason also, in that interview, I remember so vividly how he described Earl's approach to the piano as the one that his, his aunts and his, 
the older women in, in his household or in his family rather, the way they would approach the piano. And it wasn't about being accessible either. It was about a certain type of musicality, a certain kind of melodic approach to the piano, a certain ornamentation that he associated with older women who played piano. Interesting. Let's place him. You already said out of Pittsburgh, Westinghouse High School, an incredibly fertile moment and place. But then there's a category of great players of the era, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Bud Powell, Mm -hmm. Earl Hines, Bill Evans, Wynton Kelly, Keith Jarrett eventually. His his contemporary survivor, in my view, is Chucho Valdez, the Cuban. Hmm. But he also arrived in New York at age 23 in 1944, anticipating post-war jazz, really, what was called the bebop era, which stood for all manner of acceleration, intensification, reharmonization. And he played long stints with those giants, Miles Davis and then Charlie Parker, whom he adored and was thrilled to play with. But forever he remained himself and not a bopper. Or there's a bopper in there, but we thought it was easy jazz until we started listening. It was tune-centered, it was accessible, it was fun. Yeah, you know, the, the, the recordings he made with Charlie Parker are, are classic. And the one thing that you can't avoid is the fact that Earl had an advanced sense of harmony. He starts out as someone who really can navigate virtually all of the prevailing genres or subgenres of jazz, you know, and in the 1950s when his recording career takes off. B.J. Iron, in conversation with you, Robin, speaks of a big theme of his embodied cognition, meaning mm-hmm. musical understanding in the body that communicates body to body. Forget the fact that he didn't read. That wasn't what he was up to. He famously said, who can hear you reading? But (laughs) I'm learning this late life myself. Music is a very physical thing. I said to Yo-Yo Ma not long ago, you guys should get more credit as athletes, just what you can do with fingers and a bow, but certainly a pianist like Errol. The understanding is visceral, but much deeper than that. Right, right, exactly. And I would also add that... um, I think athletes should get more credit as thinkers as well, you know, <laughs> <Good point. laughs> because it's it's like the it's, it is exactly embodied cognition that we're talking about. So the way in which the mind body are not split, but they they function as, as a kind of wholeness. And so much of the exp- of musical expression, you know, requires a kind of embodied cognition, you know, the physical act, like what does it take, for example, to play a whole tone scale? How do you have to hold your fingers? Exactly. How does your, you know, how does your body, you know, move to basically keep, you know, multiple rhythms in place? 
So it's one thing to listen to Garner. It's another thing to see him play and to hear how he expresses in what they call solfeggio or just like this vocal grunts in song. You know, you always hear his voice. To listen to what Garner is saying and shouting and grunting and moaning is to see and hear him think, you know, at the keyboard and see and hear him feel at the keyboard. I mean, he's, he's a poster child for embodied cognition in many ways. Even further, I think, in your podcast, Robin, you said in Errol's music, you hear a life, a way mm -hmm. of being in the world. Yeah, that's a, you know, I don't remember when I said that, but it sounds sounds good now. It was great. <laughs> um, but you know what I think I meant? One of the things that's often missing from the way we think of artists, we think of careers where we don't think of life. Garner was focused on the music. He had relationships. He had a very close friendship with his manager. But so much of his life was about how to get this music around the world, mm. how to keep making this music. And that was his source of joy, you know. But also, he did it under circumstances where he came out having to wage a war against one of the biggest corporate machines in the world. And that left a mark on him. He was at the top of his game in many ways at the time when Columbia Records did a number on him in terms of releasing music that he did not want released. You know, that was all news to me, and it's still, frankly, hard to believe. He had done more for Columbia than they had for him. That was, mm -hmm. Concert by the Sea was second only to Kind of Blue among the mm -hmm. giant hits of that period. And I can imagine how George Avakian and others at Columbia didn't give him anything he wanted. Right, right. Well, part of it has to agree. For example, Concert by the Sea, when it was released, it sold 225,000 copies within a year, which was really unprecedented. Again, like you said, with the exception of Kind of Blue, which comes out later. And, you know, his recording career had taken off before that, but this was really, really a big break for him. But Columbia prematurely released a record because they wanted to take advantage of the, the Garner wave. And then they planned to release two new records and they were uh, released without authorization. And his contract was very clear that he has the right to decide what goes out. And they put out anyway. And this is John Hammond, you know, who mm. I just want to name some names here. So Garner sends a telegram to, to Hammond, the main A&R person. And he says, you know what? Withdraw it. You know, just withdraw the recording. And Hammond's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I just want to read something to you. This is what 
Garner writes in his telegram. He says, you feel that you can sandbag me because I'm a Negro artist? Wow. He warned, I mean, this is Garner saying, don't pass off inferior material. It not only violates my own artistic integrity, but that of every other artist on the label. I mean, that was the main point he was trying to make. Mm. And they didn't listen. So then he sued them. He and Martha sued Columbia. And that was just a big, big struggle. And it was a battle for justice. And that's not a story you typically hear. No. You know, not at all. Can I tell you another piece of my experience with Earl Garner? Yes, I'd love to hear. I got to tell you the first time I heard him, thanks to my eccentric, incredibly hip maiden aunt, a devout Boston lady, but she said, kids, you've got to hear Earl Garner. Who's Earl Garner? He's a man for whom the piano is just kind of an extension of himself. I don't know how (laughs) she knew, but we went one night in the 50s. I might have been... 16 years old, no older. And, of course, he just totally blew us away in George Ween's Storyville Club, which was the place. And at 11 o'clock, my sister pokes me and says, look who's sitting at the next table. And I turn, and it's Ted Williams in after the ball game. And <laughs> the baseball player. The baseball right. player, the great, right. the Errol Garner of left-handed <laughs> hitting. But <laughs> later I discovered that they were close friends Errol spells it out in Arthur Taylor's Notes and Tones. But what's the kinship here, I'm thinking? It's genius to genius. The indescribably gifted men sensing it in the other. So did you ever, did you ever approach him? I did. Yourself? I did. I had a girlfriend at the time for whom I got an, got an album and had the presumption to go to the Somerset Hotel. He stayed at the Somerset Hotel, the number two great hotel in Boston, because he couldn't stay in the Ritz because of his Mm. color. But I called him up. And one time he said, "Uh, well, I'm busy now. I'm I'm working on my payroll, which was some sort of wild inside joke. But another time (laughs) he came down and he signed that album to my girl. And it was a period when he would sign right-handed or left-handed. But... No, he was always a very sh- sort of a shy gentleman, beautiful little man. Mm-hmm. When we speak about a sort of omnibus talent, Cy Johnson, a pianist and an arranger, told Whitney Balliot, this was long ago when Errol was still alive, he said that Errol had something like Mozart's power to improvise all night without stopping. And he had done it. He had told Errol he should record all the time. He shouldn't wait for recording dates and such. He should go into a recording studio whenever he got the chance and capture what his head was always full of. He did it once in a studio. This is Cy Johnson speaking. Hour after hour, four hours of it. The tape that came out of it is the most amazing solo jazz piano I have ever heard. Everything on it is a tour de force. It's a man taking endless chances. It is tapping a keg and out comes a torrent. <laughs> <laughs> and lucky us, we can still hear it. Yes. Thank you.
That's amazing. It's funny, Whitney Belliot's piece was called Being a Genius. Mm -hmm. So it's not news exactly, you're just painting it in bigger dimensions. Where does the story go from here? Starting from the decision on Ken Burns' part, it broke Martha Glazer's heart not to put him in the ultimate catalog with Louis Armstrong and Duke mm -hmm. Ellington. Right, right. I wish I had an explanation for that, you know, especially given the fact that I happen to be one of the advisors on the jazz series that Ken Burns did, mm. you know. And it all came down to who was considered heroic, in a sense. Mm. It was a particular kind of narrative. And Garner, I think, wasn't perceived to be either heroic enough, mm. though when you look at his story, it's incredibly heroic. But, you know, it's now's Earl's time. Now's the time to actually recognize this. And artists who mostly focus on the reinterpretation of standards, Tin Pan yep. Alley songs, you know, are, don't always get the credit they deserve because composers are the ones who, who tend to dominate mm. the kind of iconography of this music. One exception, of course, being Miles Davis, who did compose, but he didn't compose a lot. You know, he also surrounded himself by people like Wayne Shorter and others who would write these original compositions that he would play. In the case of Garner, Garner was a, was a leader, uh, a band leader who would recompose standards, you know, and make them his own. chose to find things in that music. He did recompose them, as detailed as any band arrangement, contrasting sections, voices of violins, woodwinds, percussion, a narrative arc. He might never play it again exactly the same way, and not written, but performed entirely his own, a standard tune, but nothing at all standard about it. And it's his right. thing. Exactly, exactly. I mean. Like all the musicians of his generation, he appreciated, respected melody. So he wasn't trying to go way outside of the basic melodic or harmonic structure, but he had a way through his phrasing, through his improvisation, to make you excited about what feels like a new song. Coming up, was there a secret Errol Garner inside his piano introductions? This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. Errol Garner brought an air of suspense and surprise and sometimes mischief to his piano. He would slip in quotes from all over and classical piano touches just for the fun of it. He could imitate anything. Debussy's Claire de Lune, for example, and Chopin, and anybody. 
Earl was a master of the jazz trio. He wasn't one who who gave his sidemen a lot of space to solo, but but in order for him to swing, they had to swing. Mm. One little secret, I'm sure that fans know this about Earl, but those who not, his rhythm section did not know what he was going to play next. There was no playlist. There was no playlist. Like, no one knew. <laughs> so he'd start with these introductions that seemed to have no relationship at all to the tune. And then they'd have to figure it out and go right into it. And for, especially for a bass player, you got to know, you know, sometimes the, the intro is not in the same key as the song itself. So, you know, you just had to be ready, to be ready. That's another big discovery in your series, Robin, that maybe those introductions, utterly mysterious, eccentric, some of the best stuff on YouTube is Eddie Calhoun looking, throwing his hands up saying, where the hell are we going? <laughs> Listen to the song here. It's Just the Way You Look Tonight. Jerome Kern's melody, Dorothy Field's lyrics. They won the Best Song Oscar in 1936. Fred Astaire danced to this music in the movie Swing Time. Errol takes his time getting to the tune that everybody knew. this is the secret arrow inside what we were listening to all those years. He mm -hmm. called them, he's laying down colors on his palette. He's flying blind, seeing what's out there. What am I feeling? Where does this want to go? Right. There's a story right. in that in that good little book on Errol, Martha shutting him off, saying, you know, no, no, that, we're starting again, retake. And Errol just keeps playing, ignoring her entirely. And he said, I had to find out how it, how it came out. <laughs> Speak of the notion that the reintroductions, some of them reattached to their tapes, could be the core of the story. Right, right. Because there are times when the introductions have been cut out. But to restore them is to really reveal the complete journey that Gardner's taken. I think Jason Moran's absolutely right, that there is a kind of preparing the palette, preparing the mood, and then when you listen really carefully every once in a while, elements of the introduction do come back in the improvisation. You know, he'll repeat certain themes that he introduced. So it's not like he'd play introduction and forget about it. It is it's there all the time. I want to know how a music authority and real listener, Robin Kelly, got from Thelonious Monk to Errol Garner. I knew you first as a marvelous biographer of Thelonious Monk, who was so many things that Errol was not. He was eccentric, he was angular, where Errol was rounded and rhythmic, an accomplished player, could have done it all. How did you get from one to the other? 
it wasn't a huge leap, only because Thelonious himself said how much he loved Earl Garner. He loved his playing. I mean, keep in mind, one of Thelonious's biggest influences was um, Nat Cole. So mm. there's, a, there's a line there. So he loved Garner. He loved Garner's harmonies. Because Garner's harmonies are pretty dissonant. You know, we, we sometimes miss that. Yep. You know, he, and I think that, you know, Garner was probably closer to Monk than we think. You know, and I, at least when I listened again, I began to hear some connections. There were contemporaries. They were com- sort of semi-competing for the same slots in the downbeat polls and the international critics polls and all that stuff. But Monk ended up overshadowing Garner in certain respects. And yet Monk never once ever talked badly about Garner. I mean, just nothing but praise for him. He and Garner shared this common language of what music involves, which is intervals, harmony, rhythm, melody, timbre, and freedom, and emotion, and feeling, and narrative. Mm. They all had that in common. They spoke a common language, Mm. you know? And that's why, you know, neither Monk nor Garner ever had to call a key, like play that in the key of F. The, the key of B flat. They didn't say that, you know, that's not how it worked. And so they had like a, just a mastery of musical understanding. And that's where I get so frustrated when people say, well, you know, he couldn't read. Well, he had a mastery of the language of music that reading does not give you. It's just a shortcut, you know? Mm, so absolutely. there's that. And then also they, they love much of the same music. When you look at Garner's repertoire, they played many of the same songs. Duke Ellington songs like Caravan, for example. Or, shoot, if you just look at... um. Sweet and Lovely, that's a song they both did amazing work with. Absolutely. There are great kind of performances and arrangements that so surprise you. One of my favorites is Happiness is just a thing called Joe. Mm-hmm. Harold Arlen's song, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. That left hand. Oh, man. Jason Rand blew me away in conversation with you talking about pianists would say Errol has three hands in a piece like that. Right. The, the choir piece, the melody piece, and then the soloist. Exactly. Exactly. Those thick arpeggios. And then it's true. It's like three hands. And his left hand was pretty astounding, both because we think that playing those left hand flourishes in time, four and four that that's an easy thing to do, but that's exhausting. 
It's exhausting to do that and to do it and never, ever lose time. And you can do that. And happiness is a thing called Joe, of course, from Cabin in the Sky. And it's a song that so many people recorded. My favorite recording, of course, is um, Abby Lincoln's. I heard uh, you say that and I know exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful. But what he does with that, he brings the story. You know, he brings the story. He brings the orchestra. And the orchestra allows to tell the story from the film. And I just think it's just astounding. It reminds me a little bit of his recording earlier, a lot earlier, of Don't Worry About Me. Mm. Very slow, very, very thoughtful. That saying it's a breakup song, mm-hmm. a heartbreaker. Mm. It's beautiful. So I understand that you actually knew Martha Glazer. I met her at the Plaza Hotel once in New York. We sat out in the park talking all afternoon about Errol. The stories, though, were completely in character with what you know. Kind of a private guy of real peace, joy, Mm -hmm. simplicity. Not naive, but very innocent in a way. At least that's what I understood. Right, right, exactly. I mean, to go back to Martha's life, you know, it's unusual for a manager to basically decide, I'm going to have one client and one client only. And that's what she decided to do. And mm-hmm. part of it has to do with, you know, she, she comes from a very political background. You know, she's from Duquesne, Pennsylvania, but she grew up mainly in Detroit. And she was brilliant. She got a degree in government and minored in economic sociology and history at Wayne State University, was active in Detroit Youth Council as a union organizer or union supporter and she worked for the office of the Manpower Commission during the war and was hmm. looking at the whole question of, of understanding um, the 1943 Detroit riots. And one of the things that she was doing was producing radio documentaries. So, you know, you and Martha have a direct connection in that respect. Uh, and then she focused on combating racism in the entertainment industry and ended up in Chicago. And so... That's when she, you know, was working with Norman Grant's Jazz and Philharmonic and then created her own management company in 1948. Now, what women are creating a management company in 1948? Uh, She is. And Mm. she ends up hiring Garner. And the rest is history in terms of their their collaboration. First of all, you've got to tell me how to reach Jason Moran. What what a mind. What an interesting man. Putting Errol in context... Mm-hmm. He said that there are musicians who affect generations. Errol Garner was one who knew how to distribute joy. He's not Mingus, mm-hmm. he's not Train. Errol Garner is bounce, dance, slow dance. I love this line. He said he understands his place in society and he knows the power of his music. That sounds about right. He knew the power of his music. He had an enormous integrity. He did not want to put out music he recorded that he felt was inferior. 
which is hence the, the lawsuit, he also, you know, whether or not his audience was 5,000 or five, mm. he played with the same energy and the same purpose always. And he, and he was ripped off. His labor was always exploited, you know, by record companies and music publishers. And so that's why they made a decision to go uh, independent. And which I think, again, explains a lot about why he's not a household name in the same way. And finally, there's something to say about his relationship to experimental music or to experimentation as a, as a whole. Mm. You know, we can construct Errol Garner as a kind of museum piece, but that would be such a disservice. This is someone who was never nostalgic about the past, even if he played old music. He always looked forward and looked ahead. And in fact, um, he had a deep appreciation for experimentation. And when you listen to him, even playing some of the most basic standards, his sense of harmony is really adventurous, dissonant, and explosive. I mean, just listen to some of the other recordings from the late 60s, early 70s. You could hear it. once told drummer Arthur Taylor that he appreciated the Beatles and he also said he appreciated free jazz. Yes. But he said, he says, up to a point. Yeah. Up to a point. And what he says, I think is so profound. He says, you know, as long as musicians are working together and expressing themselves rather than just mimicking others. And his quote is, he says, no, the freedom has got to come together. That's what's going to make the world in the future. Freedom and coming together. People can't be free and going off in opposite direction or else there won't be any foundation. That's his philosophy. You could hear it in everything he plays and everything he does. That's beautiful. We've got to play a snatch of Red Top just because it's a deceptively simple little blues exercise, maybe six or eight choruses, but it is a story. Alice Blue Gown thrown in. <laughs> How I love that. This song swings so hard. And what's amazing, we, we associate sometimes that song with the big bands, with Lionel Hampton, Woody Herman. But see how Errol could sound like a big band? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a trio. It sounds like a big band. Absolutely. Robin D.G. Kelly, you're a treasure. Thank you for this conversation, and thank you for your podcast, Errol Garner, Uncovered. Yes, thank you so much, Chris. This is always a pleasure to talk to you, always. Uh 
Please think of open source in your end of the year giving. The best way is by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon, where you'll find a growing audio library of conversations about literature, politics, and more. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. Our show this week was produced by bandmates Connor Gillies and Adam Coleman and our orchestrator Mary McGrath. Max Liebman engineered. We say farewell and good luck to Connor, a gifted producer and a wonderful human being. Take it easy, Connor, but take it, as Studs Terkel said. And join us with the rest of the folks out there next time. Join us every time on Open Source. Open Source.